movements. Okay, let's see if I can do this. I've never preached a sermon with no coffee in my body before, so <laughs> ran out of coffee this morning. That's the disclaimer. What's that? <laughs> That's okay, Rita. Uh, I'm going to read Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. Mark 16, verses 1 to 8. This is Mark's very short account of the resurrection of Jesus. When Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where you laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So here's the context of Mark, of what, the passage that we're looking at in Mark, for those of you who are kind of coming into this long series. We are at the tail end of Jesus' final week in Jerusalem that has culminated with his crucifixion and death and burial. And in that final week, Jesus has been confronted, and he has confronted the religious authorities of his day in the temple courts. He's been betrayed, he's faced condemnation, rejection by his own people, torture, crucifixion, death, and burial. And where Mark 15 ends, which is the friends and some of the women of Jesus, uh, who were kind of his patrons, laying him in the tomb, putting him to rest, that is the ending of the story that, um, that everybody kind of was accustomed to at the time, really. And what I mean by that is, in the span of the, a little bit before the first century to 80, 90, you know, the years 80, 90 um, AD, there are quite a few messianic proclaimers that rise up amongst the Jewish people. People who say, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, I am God's anointed one who is going to bring the kingdom of God uh, often with force and power and establish it and overthrow Rome. Jesus, people thinking that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus declaring himself to be the Messiah, was not a, uh, in one sense, rare, isolated incident that was not on anyone's radar. In the first century, lots of people were making claims to be the Messiah. And when they did, the, the play out of the script was pretty predictable. They would rise to prominence, they would have a group of people, sometimes it was very small, a few hundred, sometimes it was quite large, up to three, four, or 5,000 people. And these followers would band around them and they would whip up a fury and people would say, yeah, this is the Messiah, this is the Christ, this is the one who's gonna deliver us. And eventually they kind of step on Rome's toes. Rome says, yeah, we're not having this. And then they are crucified, tortured, crucified, and buried. And that's it. That's the end of the story. Roman historian Josephus 
describes some of these false messiahs that kept coming up in the first century. In his historical account of the first century called Antiquities, he says, there were a body of wicked men that also sprung up, cleaner in their hands, but more wicked in their intentions, right? Religiously very clean, very pure, but wicked in their intentions, who destroyed the peace of the city no less than did, than did these murderers, the Sakari. And the Sakari he's referring to is a group of zealots who would actually, um, they were kind of like paid assassins. They would go into crowds and attempt to assassinate Roman officials. So he says they weren't as violent as the Sakari. They had cleaner hands. Right? There was no blood on their hands in the same way that the zealots had, but these false messiahs were still very wicked in their intentions because they were deceivers and they were deluders of the people. And under the pretense of divine illumination, they advocated for innovation and change. And they prevailed on the multitudes to act like madmen, to, to act out of their mind. And they went into the wilderness and encouraged people to follow them, pretending that God would there show them signs of liberty. So there were these hyped up, uh, maddened, frenzied people saying, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, and they would work people up into a frenzy and they would claim to have special signs and words of knowledge and power and uh, uh, direct encounter, uh, direct knowledge from God and that they were going to, they were going to be the conduit through which God's kingdom is going to break into the first century. But as that script got played again and again and again and it always ended with that leader in a tomb and then the disciples of that leader would fall away and that would be it. Um, you know, when we get to at the end of Mark's gospel, that's how anybody certainly hearing this story for the first time would have, and experiencing it, would have expected there's been a falling away, Jesus has been crucified, he's been shown not to be this powerful Lord and Savior and certainly no Messiah. We saw where we laid the body, we saw the stone, and, and that's it. Every messianic revolution ended the same way except for this one because Mark's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't end at the end of chapter 15 chapter 16 verse 1 when the Sabbath was over Mary Magdalene Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus's body now again understand the emotional context of this verse the women are coming to bury their hope, not to ignite it. There is no anticipation. There is no expectancy. Even though Jesus has seated throughout his ministry, son of man's going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men on the third day is going to rise, and the third day I will rise. If you tear down this temple, I tell you the truth, you know, in three days I will rebuild it. He's been seeding these clues. No one, the gospel writers make it very clear. No one was like, you know, I remember him saying, like, on the third day, we should, like, go back on the third day and check it out. Like, what do we got to lose? No one's thinking that at all. That's very clear. This is simply women going to bury their hope, a final act of caring for Jesus' body before they have to say goodbye. Verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who's going to roll the, uh, sorry, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robes 
in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. And we know from the other gospel accounts, this is an angel. The white robe is a um, kind of an allusion to the, uh, the dazzling white robe that Jesus had when he was transfigured on the mountain. This is a supernatural being. They're afraid. Their reaction to him makes it very clear that he's supernatural, and he's a messenger. He brings a message. And in Greek, the word angel is angelos, which means messenger. He brings a message from on high. Don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See, the place where you laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. So in this quiet Sunday morning, the crack of dawn, going to bury their hope, these women encounter a proclamation. Jesus is not here. He has risen. He's gone ahead of you. Jesus is alive. Now, to state the obvious, there are tons of people who discount this proclamation, who are highly skeptical of it, or dismiss it out of hand. And usually, at least the, the popular way of doing that now is some kind, of, some kind of appeal to, well, this was clearly a legend that was later inserted by people who um, used it to kind of fluff up the gospel accounts. The problem with that idea that uh, this is a later edition or an exaggeration of something that wasn't true is that there's a huge historical problem if, if Jesus isn't raised and if the empty tomb does not point to a resurrected Jesus. And the historical problem is this. How do you explain Christianity's uh, world-toppling influence and spread in the next 200 years if your view is that the early disciples kind of made some kind of mistake about what was happening. It was either the, um, maybe not mistake isn't the right word. If the, if the early church knew and the early uh, disciples understood that Jesus wasn't literally raised, but it was a legend, and so it kind of got smuggled in uh, on the back end of history, and the early church probably understood that they weren't proclaiming a literal resurrection. But they still wanted to proclaim a, a spiritual resurrection, something metaphorical, something mythic in nature. Why would Christianity flourish if Jesus' resurrection was metaphorical or if it was symbolic? You often hear that, right? I don't believe in a literal resurrection. This is often the line of um, so people within the so-called progressive Christian camp. Well, I don't believe in a literal resurrection. I think that's kind of patently absurd. But I think the resurrection points to a symbolic truth that life, life overcomes death, or it's, it's, a, it's a metaphorical way of understanding how the Christians had this great hope. How come that hope didn't spring up with any of the other messiahs who died? Why didn't anyone else say, oh, this leader who we buried, and we know he's not really alive, you know, but, but he lives on in our hearts, and he continues to inspire us. And so he still lives with us and in us and through us. Every other movement just fades into obscurity. But this movement centered around Jesus the Nazarene doesn't. 
a message built on the teachings of Jesus that wasn't founded on the power of a risen Jesus, that didn't have its grounding in a literal resurrection, resurrection I would argue, sociologically speaking, it w Christianity would not have had the impact that it had over the next 200 years and certainly over the next 2,000. If there's a skeptic here and they're saying, I don't believe the resurrection is a literal claim that I can affirm. It's symbolic, it's metaphorical, it's mythic. It, it points towards maybe a deeper spiritual truth, but by spiritual I mean like immaterial, not tangible. Then you have a very practical problem on your hands. How did the Christian faith go viral? Why did it go viral? Timothy Keller says this, can you imagine being part of the early church? Can you imagine preachers of the early church going out into cities, into the highways and byways, going to what was the, at the time the ends of the earth and saying, I want to proclaim to you the hope that is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the resurrection didn't happen. It's not real, but it's a massively powerful symbol of how good triumphs over evil. So let's all just be nice to each other. If that was the central claim of Christianity, Christians would have been laughed out of town. If you sideline a literal, literal resurrection and simply trump it up as little more than it's an idea about how the spirit of Jesus, uh, and not the Holy Spirit, but like the, the cultural sense of the spirit of Jesus can live on with all of us as long as we love God and love our neighbor and just be nice to each other, that doesn't explain Christianity's spread. It doesn't explain Christianity's Rome-toppling influence. The ancient world was a brutal, hard place for everybody. And it was a world where people were looking for a real promise of real power, of real deliverance, for real change. Metaphor and symbolism doesn't help you very much when you're a slave. It doesn't help you very much when you live with the boot of Rome on your neck. And the reason why Christianity spread is because people found in Christianity the promise and the power for true deliverance and true change. Not because Christianity was simply a set of ideas or new ideas or just some highly, simplifi highly simplified but very motivating call to love people and care for the world. It was deeper than that. The revolutionary claim of Christianity was that Jesus was everything that he proclaimed to be. And he was everything, and everything that he talked about how God, what God was going to do in and through him had happened. And Jesus' entire life and his entire message was vindicated because of all the prophets and all the leaders and all the messiahs and all the Christs. God has only raised one from the dead. And so in being raised from the dead, and being raised up through his ascension to seat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. God has proclaimed this Jesus to be Lord and Savior of the whole world. And therefore, all people are called to repent, reconsider how they're living, 
in light of the fact that Jesus is now calling the world to repentance and to align itself with his kingdom agenda. So you might be against the idea of a literal bodily resurrection. Jesus really, flesh and blood, rose from the dead. But if you're going to hold to that position, you're going to have to do better than what any modern skeptic and any modern historian has been able to do, which is provide a plausible explanation, discounting a physical resurrection, why Christianity spreads so powerfully and why it has the influence that it does. No other sociological explanation comes close to being able to have the explanatory power of Christianity's influence for the next 2,000 years than the fact that the empty tomb points to a risen savior and this proclamation is not legendary, it is fact. People began to live into that truth, encountered the risen Lord, and he began to affect real change, not just sentimental, um, didn't just kind of take a spin on some new slogans about how we should care for each other. He gave people a new power through which to love and to turn the world right side up. Now there's another dimension to this story that I find really interesting and helpful to reflect on. And this is the one that struck me as I was uh, preparing and reading and, and praying about this. And that is, you know, you think about this emotional space that the women are in. They're moving towards the tomb. They, they hear this proclamation. Sometimes, and maybe often, maybe most of the time, God's greatest redemptive work is being done right under your nose, but you're just not aware of it. Sometimes God's greatest redemptive work is being done right under your nose. You're not even aware of it, and that's why it's so important to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. And this is what I mean by that. On Sunday morning, no, no disciple, none of these women got up and felt like something had changed. Oh, there's a, like, I, I don't know. I'm feeling like today's gonna be a good day. It feels like something's changed. No one got up feeling any different. They got up with the burden of grief hanging around their heart. And they moved into that Sunday morning assuming, believing that their hopes were dead even though Jesus had already been resurrected, left the tomb, and had gone out ahead of them in the mission. Think about that timeline. They are starting to, how, how are we gonna roll with a stone? Isn't this sad? Here, this, we have all the spices, we're going to bury Jesus. And Jesus is like gone, he's like gone ahead of them in the mission. They were on their way to anoint Jesus' dead body as a final act of mourning, and by the crack of dawn, he's already up, and he's already getting on with his day. He's already getting on with new creation. New creation has already been established, but the women and the disciples, even though, um, sorry, they, they thought that they were living still in an age of hopelessness and sin and death. They were living according well, they, they were trusting and, and presuming their own lived experience, which was Jesus is dead and the dream is over. That was their worldview, even though the actual world had changed. They felt lost and without hope, but in reality, they weren't lost. They, they had lots of reason for hope. They just didn't know it yet. 
And this morning, you might feel like you're lost and without hope. But that doesn't mean that you actually are lost and without hope. Because the tomb is empty. And Jesus has risen. And the world has changed. And God is at work in your circumstances. And he's gone ahead of you, even if you're not aware of it. Even if you don't feel like it. Even if you don't sense it. And this is a good story about how you can't trust your senses. Because five minutes before they would have showed up to the tomb, if you would have said, hey, like, what are your kind of prospects for the rest of how this day is going to play out, ladies? They're not going to say, I, got, I, got a, I kind of got a good feeling about this. They would have been like, I see no reason for hope. But Jesus had already been resurrected. New creation had already started. And that's important for me because it reminds me to not mistake God's apparent silence or his apparent absence for his powerlessness or, or, or his absence. God is often working very closely, very powerfully, but sometimes secretly and imperceptively and not necessarily in a way that we can kind of say, oh, I, kinda, I see where you're going, God, I see where you're going. But what sometimes we do as Christians is in the absence of that sense of what God is up to, we panic, we begin to doubt, we give in, we start walking in a lie that there's no hope or that God's not really active. And this is a story that says we can't do that. Just because we don't feel certain things, that's, that should be irrespective for us. We don't walk by sight, meaning our senses. We don't live based on um, following what seems right in our own eyes. We follow Jesus based on faith and trusting that new creation is, is, has broken forth. God is at work in our lives, whether or not we perceive it, and Jesus has gone ahead of us, and now we're to follow him. And so that's what we do. That's what we should do. And that means if you're having a very ordinary day, a very ordinary Sunday, a very ordinary Tuesday, and just going about your day, you should trust that there are many extraordinary things that God is doing in your life that you might not be aware of right now. God might bring it to light in a day, in a week, in a month, in a year. But this is a story that teaches me to, by faith, walk in a holy boldness and a holy confidence that says, everything around me says this is just kind of a normal day. Or maybe everything around me says this is a really difficult season that I'm in, or this is a storm, or I'm in the midst of grief, or I'm in the midst of hardship. But I'm gonna remember those women walking to the tomb. They didn't know what I know about their story. The tomb was already empty. Jesus was already resurrected. Jesus had gone out ahead of them. God was at work in their life. So I'm going to trust and walk by faith. There's an interesting dynamic to this story. You have these women I've talked with enough Christians over the years to know that I know when Easter comes and resurrection comes and uh, talk of that empty tomb comes, there are people who, there can be a, um, a sadness that sets in for some Christians. And the reason is because even in the midst of this, this good news, what they can think is, I know that Easter is good news, but it's good news for like, kind of like good Christians, right? Like the women, they didn't know that Jesus was alive, but they were still doing the right thing. They're going to the tomb. 
They're doing what's culturally appropriate for them. They're, they're showing love and concern for, for Jesus. So they get this announcement, and this is, it, it's good news for them. And I've met a lot of Christians over the years, surprisingly, who kind of have this idea that, yeah, like, resurrection's awesome, but it's sort of particularly so for faithful Christians. And there's something in the story that I hope jumps out at you that I think should really challenge that view and idea. Because there's a lot of people around Easter who can't get excited about it, can't get excited about an empty tomb because they're living with a lot of shame and a lot of self-condemnation around failure. The resurrection offers hope to the faithful and the faith-filled, for sure. That's kind of the, the thinking. But what about failures? What about the faithless like me? Well, we know all the women, all the disciples were walking with the burden of grief strung around their hearts that morning. But if you go back in Mark, you're going to know there's one other person who carries a different burden, an additional burden, on top of that grief. And it's a burden that can only come from the immense shame that emerges when you fail to live up to who you think you should be and or who you think God has called you to be. And who is that person? Peter. And so the sun rises on this new, on this first day of the week, the first day of the first week of new creation. And as the sun rises, a grace note sounds very loud and clear. Right? The angel says, but go tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter. On any given Sunday, I know there are people who are hearing the sound of my voice who, like Peter, they believe their failures kind of overrule, override God's grace. And they've resigned themselves to live as second-class citizens in the kingdom of God because of it. They, like Peter, have drifted out of following Jesus, and as we read about in the other gospel accounts post-resurrection, have gone back to their old life as fishermen. Jesus called me. I screwed up pretty royally. That life isn't for me anymore. I'm going to go back to my old life. Sure, God forgives, but not for this sin. Or not for this sin this many times. Not f and not fully forgives. Sure, God restores, but not for me, not this time, not when I do something like this. Sure, God loves, but not, not wholeheartedly. Not towards someone like me who can't get their act together. You know, given what I've done, his love for me, it has to be muted. It has to be half-hearted. It has to be begrudging or reluctant. On any given Sunday, there are Peters in the pews who believe these very things. And if you're a Peter here this morning, if you assume that your failures and your shortcomings have forever condemned you to a second-class Christian life, I want you to hear the words from that angel's lips and Peter. And you, you put your own name in there. 
and Jeff, and Leslie, and Lynn, and Ray, and Justin, all of us, go tell Jesus' disciples, and Jeff, and the Peters out there, that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. The angel is given the task of making sure Peter specifically is told about the empty tomb and the risen Jesus so that Peter can learn the truth that if you are a Christian, you will need to know at some point in your life that the empty tomb declares the source of your failure, the source of your hopelessness, the source of your self-condemnation to be woefully, woefully insufficient to thwart the grace of God. The empty tomb declares the source of your failure, your hopelessness, your self-condemnation to be woefully insufficient to thwart the grace of God. And there's, even, there's actually even better news than that. The empty tomb points to better news than that, actually. Not only is the source of your failure insufficient to thwart the grace of God, God's grace is such that he will often use the source of your failure to bring about greater kingdom influence through you. One commentator said this, you know, Peter ends up being one of the most prominent influential leaders in the early church, which doesn't make sense if God would only promote people who are the best and the brightest. Peter is one of the biggest screw-ups, but here lies the profound grace found in the gospel. Because Peter's screw-up was the biggest, his repentance will be the deepest. And his grasp of grace will be the greatest. And that will make him the most qualified person to be a leader in the Jesus movement. Not only are your failures not able to thwart the grace of God. They can actually become a means through which the grace of God works out a story of redemption and restoration that you could have never done under your own power and through your own influence. God's grace is just absolutely amazing. The empty tomb of Jesus offers a hope unlike any other, and it offers a hope unlike any other, especially for spiritual Peters, especially for spiritual Peters. Lastly, verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And in many of your Bibles, there's going to be a note that says, kind of like this is the end of Mark's gospel. Verses 9 to 20, I'll teach on this in a few weeks, and we'll dive into this a little bit further. But verses 19 to 20 do not show up in the earliest manuscripts of Mark. Verse 8 is what we have as the final line of Mark's gospel. Now, that's led to some controversy because it's, a, it's an incredibly abrupt ending. And it doesn't provide closure that it, on things that it looks like Mark was setting up earlier in his gospels. So we're, we'll look at that in a few weeks. Um, and then there's debates, you know, is, was, Mark's, was the end of Mark's gospel lost? Is this intentional to leave it like this? Um, what's very clear is that verses 9 to 20 were a later addition 
They don't contain any false information, but they were a later addition by uh, scribes who were clearly anxious about the fact that, like, this seems like a, not a good place to end the gospel. There's been no encounter with Jesus. We don't really know what's happened after this. We talked about how Jesus has gone ahead of them into the Galilee. There's no account for that. So we're going to kind of quickly throw some, some things together um, that are true, and they, these were added later. So I'll talk in a few weeks about how we should approach that in terms of is that authoritatively the word of God? Is that an addition? How do we, um, how do we kind of tackle uh, a later edition like that, which the tr- church has always said, and when the Bible was compiled, it was said, yeah, this is a, a later edition. But I think for now, I'd want to say two things. Number one, the, the earliest, most faithful manuscripts of Mark end at verse 8. So I think that's what we should treat and trust that God, via the Holy Spirit, that is the text um, inspired through Mark that God preserved for us. And, and secondly, there is a cool thing that comes out uh, reflecting on Mark's gospel if it ends in verse 8. Because verse 8 does kind of leave off with, with a pretty significant cliffhanger. There's this charge for the women. They flee. They don't tell anybody. And it's like dot, dot, dot. Right? And it's, it's actually one of the things that some scholars, and this isn't a majority view, but some scholars say this is one of the clues that Mark might be a gospel that's written even earlier than, it was a, than most scholars think it was meaning 57 to 62, like 30-ish years after Jesus. Some scholars say this might be evidence that it's earlier than that by a decade or even 15 years, meaning it was meant as an oratory advice to say the women fled, we're an early gathering of Christians, the women fled, and then they left and didn't say anything to anybody. What happened next? Someone in the back row puts up their hand. Oh, one of my friends saw Jesus. This happened. And so this was used as a springboard to solicit testimonies within the early church of eyewitnesses who could fill in the rest of the story. It was meant as an intentional setup to say, and then, oh, I was there when Jesus ascended. I was there in, in, um, in that gathering in Galilee. Or I, talk, I talked to Salome. And they were quiet at first, but then they went back and they told the other disciples. But... Let's just, for this morning's sake, say here we are at this cliffhanger. And so you have Mark, this fast-paced, fast-moving gospel, blunt, um, speeding along, gathering momentum, and there's this sudden, shocking ending. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So here's how Mark's gospel ends. Jesus has risen. The tomb is empty. You've heard the good news. Jesus has gone out ahead of you into mission. You're going to have to play catch-up to Jesus. He's always ahead of you. You've got, you got to be hot on his heels because he's not waiting for you. And it's almost like Mark is leaving us with a series of questions. Are you going to chase after Jesus? Are you going to follow him? Are you going to follow him now that you can't see him? Are you going to walk by faith instead of just walking by sight? Are you going to go and tell other people? Are you going to tell Peters of the world, that love has conquered sin and death, and that in Jesus, anyone, especially Peters, can be forgiven and restored and recommissioned into a mission unlike any other, and into a purpose that is full of joy and meaning, 
Will you let the empty tomb shock and amaze you into a new identity and a new mission? And there lies the end of Mark's gospel. Let's pray. God, as we close this morning, as we worship you, may you teach us to walk by faith and not by sight. May we follow you as you go ahead of us into mission. May you empower us by your spirit to follow hard after you, to follow you into that mission. May we hear the call and the annunciation of an angel that says the tomb is empty, now go and tell. May we do that with our lives, God, in words and actions that those around us um, can accept and can hear as we do it with love and care and grace. Amen. benediction as you head into your Sunday. As you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may the good news that Jesus has risen fill you with wonder and awe. And may every Peter in this room hear and know the promise of restoration that is available in Jesus. And may you follow Jesus into his mission with holy boldness and holy love. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all today. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless. Have a great Sunday.